Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thank you for tuning in today. I have, I'm very grateful to have Brett Larkin on the podcast today. Brett, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Brett, you're the founder of Uplifted Yoga. You created a very now well-established yoga channel. I checked it out over 10 years and over a thousand videos, a robust catalog of content. Congrats on that. And now you are a author. Yoga life, habits, poses, and breathwork to channel joy amidst, amidst the chaos. What do you mean chaos? There's no chaos, Brett. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I wrote this book because there was a year that I hit, and this is diving really right into it. But um, when I think of chaos in the word and the, the title of the book, it's for me, it was that year where I became a new mom for the first time and I lost my dad to cancer all simultaneously. And what happened less was that I couldn't practice the yoga I had been practicing up until that point. So up to that point, I had been doing group classes. I was teaching a ton of group classes. I was putting a ton of uh, videos on my YouTube channel, but they were all longer. They were 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And that year, I didn't even have time to do a 30 minute routine, like the kind I was putting online. So I really felt like a fraud because here I was cheering for other people to have this consistent daily practice. And in the chaos of my new normal with uh, my newborn cliff diving off the couch and bedpans and diapers and fighting on uh, the phone for my father's insurance, it was, uh, I was finding that the yoga that had supported me up to that point wasn't helpful anymore. Okay. Understandable. Um, well, let's reverse a little bit. Why yoga in the first place? What was your on-ramp onto that modality? It's an interesting question. Originally, I was very resistant to trying yoga. I thought it was for wimps, <laughs> and I had a dance background. So when I had a friend encourage me to try yoga, I was just very perplexed. I was like, why would I do that? I'm a dancer, right? But I was doing dance, and I was doing Pilates, and I had a lot of anxiety. I know a lot of listeners probably suffer from the same thing, right? I was always afraid the other shoe was going to drop. I like to say if there was like an Academy Award for negative dialogue and uh, negative predictions, I would have won it, right? I was always catastrophizing, thinking about how I could just be perfect to avoid the next thing going wrong. And a lot of that, I think, stemmed from childhood wounds. Uh, and when I tried yoga, it was really incredible because... I remember the first time I realized 
those negative voices in my head weren't me. And I described this in the book. I was kind of shoehorning myself into pigeon pose, which I bet a bunch of people listening might know. If you don't, it's a hip opener that you do on the ground. And I was taking it to my furthest range, right? I was pushing myself in the pose and I was experiencing a lot of pain. And I'll never forget that the teacher walked over and I thought she was going to compliment me. I thought she was going to be like, wow, you're doing such a great job. And instead she said, notice if you've gone too far in this posture. She said, if you've pushed yourself too far in this pose, it's likely that you push yourself too far in life as well. And those words sunk in and it was kind of like, boom, you know, like an explosion went off in my mind. And I realized, wow, I have a choice. I have a choice to slowly back out and off of this posture and make it feel a little bit more easeful for me and reconnect with my breath. Who is this dictator in my mind that's telling me I need to strive harder, be the best, fold further? And it was this incredible moment of awareness. And I love to talk about the yoga of awareness because to me, that's what yoga is. It's this science that's giving us awareness of our thoughts and our inner dialogue. And it's also to me, the science and technology of energy management. So we can talk about that a little bit as well. But that moment changed my life forever. I was like, wow, these voices in my head maybe aren't me. And from that point on, I was addicted because yoga gave me that perspective. It gave me that distance from the voices in my head and helped me figure out I had some choices about what I wanted to be telling or saying to myself. Nice. Brett, can, um, what age are we talking about here? Where? So I was in uh, college around that time. Yeah. Okay. End of college. And so you started to get a little separation between you and your thoughts and realized that um, they don't necessarily run the show. You mentioned earlier childhood wounds. Did you, was, when did that come about where you used or were able to use what you were gathering out of yoga to gain perspective on maybe your, your past and what, and what led to those beliefs that you had about that led you to push yourself, I guess, too hard in pigeon, mm. which someone who obviously caught an experienced eye, which sounds like led you to some kind of aha moment. I mean, this is an ongoing healing process. So I'm definitely not going to say that, you know, I'm sitting here with, with all the childhood and all the things um, kind of figured out, but I have a lot more awareness than I did a long time ago. And uh, you know, I think for me, I had a perfectionism program that was running. Uh, I love talking about the chakras and how each chakra is like a, a program that is helping us navigate the real world. And for me, when my parents told me they were divorcing, I was eight or nine years old. And I remember it being really surprising. I think a lot of kids, when their parents are getting divorced, they kind of know, right? Because their parents have been fighting or they have some idea that it's coming but I had no idea. I actually thought my parents were coming and sitting me down to tell me they were going to have another baby. And I was so excited about the <laughs> prospect of having a little brother or sister. And then when they told me this, you know, my dad started crying. I'd never seen him cry. And my whole life really changed in that moment. I figured out that, you know, everything that I had been experiencing, or I thought was my reality living in this happy family actually wasn't. And that my father, who I thought was this strong, invincible person was you know, breaking down. And I remember making a choice in that moment. And of course, this has been through lots of yoga and meditation and introspective work. But I remember that I made a choice in that moment instead of expressing how I felt and my distress and my pain and my concern and my fear, 
I remember I decided to act happy anyway, because I was expecting to act happy about the new baby. So they told me that there was going to be two houses and all that stuff. And I said, oh, that's fun, a new house. And so I kind of started pretending and developed a mask from that point forward, uh, mainly, I think, for the comfort of them, a little bit for the comfort of me. But that was the first major moment of self-abandonment. And I think that was what led to, uh, you know, my father was very sick my whole life. And then I was his sole care provider. Uh, so, you know, obviously, there's a lot of things that play into that. We all have childhood things like this or moments where, there's just a key part of you that realizes either the world's not how you interpreted it or you're not safe and that we then start pretending. And that's where these alternative narratives, I think, form in our mind to, to try to keep us safe. Yeah, protect you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like it it worked at the time when you needed it. Um, sorry to hear about the passing of your father. It, yeah. So the time constraints that you found yourself in dealing with the management of your father towards the end of his life, you said you were his sole caregiver. That must have been challenging. Along simultaneously, you were a new mom. And because of those, like the logistics that that imposed on your life, that led you to create a book that you've that is designed to like fit yoga into the the modern lifestyle more easily is am I, yes is, is that basically the yeah the exactly the so so I had my newborn in one room in my house and right next door I had my dad on hospice care and mm. unlike my mom he never remarried he remained in love with my mom his whole life mm. <laughs> so it was just him and me there wasn't anyone else and I'm an only child of course right so there was no one else really to take care of him and I, I, he was my person, right? So I was happy to do it. But my yoga business was also exploding that year. I was having a lot of growth. Um, I run online yoga teacher trainings. So that's my primary source of revenue for my yoga business. And of course, a membership site off of YouTube, lots of amazing um, online content and courses. But that year, I remember, was a huge growth year. So it was like I had this newborn baby. I had my dad dying. I had my team growing and the business expanding. And... I started looking at the yoga sutras and a lot of the philosophy that I loved. And I was finding a lot of it was about reaching enlightenment, was about reaching ecstasy. And I was like, you know what? I just need to reach the end of the day. <laughs> like this isn't this isn't helpful for me right now in this moment. So I started digging and I figured out, and I'd already kind of known this, but what I realized was that the yoga that we've been practicing and a lot of what we strive for is not designed for what I call like the householder yogi. When we look at something like the Yoga Sutras, it was really written for people who had eight to 10 hours a day to practice. Uh, these principles were written for young men going into the equivalent of priesthood, uh, like a monastic life um, in an ashram, or they were written for very elderly men who once um, in Vedic times, once a grandfather was a grandfather in his town, he'd then leave his village and he'd wander in the woods and beg for alms, he'd renounce all his possessions. Um, and that was to prepare for the next life. And so a lot of these practices are about how to leave the physical body, right? The physical body is actually seen as an obstacle to overcome. Uh, the body wants to eat, the body wants to have sex, the body has all these pesky urges. So a lot of the practices we're given are about how to transcend the body. And what I found was those practices weren't helping me in the chaos of my new normal. Um, so I started 
practicing, and I'll tell you how I practiced during this time. I'd set a timer on my phone. I didn't have a lot of time. So sometimes the timer was 20 minutes. Sometimes it was 15 minutes. Sometimes it was five minutes. And I threw out the yoga rule book that I had been given. Um, I love Kundalini yoga. That lineage has a lot of rules about when you're practicing, what you have to wear when you're practicing, um, certain chants that you have to do. Even my vinyasa rule book, I've written a bunch of yoga teacher training manuals. I threw away a lot of those rules, right? Like that certain poses have to be taught in a certain order or I just threw it all away and tuned inward and I would just practice whatever I thought would nourish me and fill my cup until the timer went off, just kind of screwing the rules. And I'll never forget this one time that I did that. And I remember feeling incredibly centered and it was because I had practiced what I call the soulmate poses. These are the, the poses that usher you into um, a flow state the fastest and the most efficiently by deepening your breath. I didn't know that at the time, but I had kind of discovered what those were for me and the breathing techniques that really balanced my personality and helped me in that specific situation with the emotions I was dealing with. I felt so great. And then I realized the timer hadn't gone off and I was like, oh no, what am I late for? My phone died. <laughs> and I looked at the phone and it was 18 minutes. And I think I had set the timer for 20 and I had really been able to pull myself into this, you know, yoga glow grounded state by doing personalized breath work and meditation. And I felt as good as I used to feel after a 60 or 90 minute class. And I didn't have time that year because that year was too crazy, but I just kept practicing in this way. And I was like, I need to tell other people about this. I'm doing this really, this potent personalized routine that I'm doing isn't just as good as like a 90 minute group class. It's better. And I'm feeling the effects in my nervous system so quickly. And so obviously it took many years after that to develop the personalization framework that I teach in the book and the quizzes that are guiding you to those soulmate postures and helping you understand your personality. Because when I dug into the history books, the other thing I discovered is yoga was really always meant to be personalized. It wasn't meant to be done in the group fitness context that we see it being practiced in today. Oh, really? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it does seem like your book creates like an algorithm to run through to personalize a lot of like kind of if this then that scenarios like how you answer the questions yes. that's interesting um i take a I, I run a gym and work in like a gym environment and i've used a like a similar process to kind of personalize programs for my people just more general not specific within the modality of yoga so you said that yoga was originally practice more individually was not in a group environment. Um, well, let's get specific. So the way that it used to be practiced, well, first of all, if we go back millennia, right, the, the poses were really a means to an end, right? So the, the physical poses were practiced in order so that the practitioner could better be able to sit still and meditate for longer periods of time to transcend the body. So the poses were just a very small piece of what yoga in totality was about. And the kindergarten teacher in my neighborhood at my son's school uses this same method. She has all the kids come in and she says, okay, everyone, let's do the wiggles. And they do a little dance thing. And then she says, okay, now we're going to sit and do our schoolwork. So the yogis kind of figured out that same thing. They were like, wow, if we stretch and, you know, in some ways strengthen our abdominal muscles, because, you know, sitting up tall is hard work, you know, with a straight spine, we can then, you know, get the, get the wiggles out, right. Get the fidgets out, strengthen our body, and then be able to sit and breathe for longer. So when we look at ancient yogic texts, like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there's not many poses. There's only, you know, 
20-ish poses, and many of them are seated. One man changed all of this. He repositioned what yoga is. So Krishnamacharya at the end of the 1800s, he made this massive pivot. It's really incredible when you look at the history. He said, all right, everybody, yoga is no longer about transcending the body. Yoga is good for the body. He saw that in Europe, there was this huge wave of uh, interest in calisthenics and gymnastics and Indian martial arts was really having a renaissance at that time as well. It makes sense because when we look at what was happening in history at that time, the industrial revolution was at the end of the 1800s, right? So prior to that, people were getting a lot of their fitness needs through life, right? You'd have to walk miles to get to the market. You were maybe plowing your own fields and, you know, life was physical, right? Once the industrial revolution happened, that changed. We got electricity, we got indoor plumbing. Um, and then a lot of people moved to cities and their jobs moved to factories. And so it makes sense that around this time period, what was happening in Europe happened, right? People were taking an interest in actually moving more, like in a recreational way through gymnastics or gyms, right? Um, or calisthenics for the first time ever. And Krishnamacharya saw this happening and he blended what was going on throughout Europe um, and in India as well with yoga, right? So the yoga that we're practicing today is a fusion of gymnastics, um, Kapali Pike, which is an Indian martial art. Uh, he, he really made yoga a melding pot and said, yoga is not about transcending the body. It actually is good for everyone. It's something everyone can practice, not just those seeking enlightenment. And it's actually for health and well-being. The thing is, is when he created the first Akara, which was like the first pre-prototypical yoga studio, right, where people were coming together to practice, the way that he taught the Mysore style of yoga, because this all originated in Mysore, was that everyone would come together to practice in a group, but the teacher would go around and assist each person individually. So if like you and I were in a class last, like he might come over to me and be like, okay, Brett, that looks good. I think you're ready to learn one more pose. Like let's add on to the sequence that you're doing. So everyone's practicing in silence, like their own thing. Gotcha. Right. And then he might come over to you and say like, okay, for you, this other thing or this other set, I think is, and I think you're ready. So you were only taught new things as you were ready. I've seen you were only recently... taught things that were appropriate for, for you and everyone's practicing in a group, but everyone's doing different things. So as I know I'm trying to paint a mental picture here, but does that kind of make sense? Yeah, sure. I've seen recently um, that some studios are recapturing that idea and having classes where you do your own thing and there's like a free floating instructor to just guide you individually for whatever you're doing. That's exactly what it was like. Yeah. Often those classes are called Mysore right. style yoga and it's very hard to find. Uh, so if you have a studio like that nearby, that's very cool. Uh, yeah, I do but, see it on the schedule nearby me a little bit. We're kind of spoiled where we are. There's a lot of yoga. A lot of yoga uh, you're lucky. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. So then we think of how yoga came West, right? And as it came West through Krishnamacharya's three key disciples, Iyengar, um, Patabi Joyce, and Desikachar, they brought it West. And it kind of got enmeshed with the group fitness movement that was happening in the 1970s and 80s when yoga came over to the United States. And then all of a sudden we have everyone doing the same pose, the same way on the same breath cadence, kind of like synchronized swimming or something, right? Mm. Like everyone's supposed to be doing the same thing the same way. And actually it doesn't make sense. I mean, in my yoga teacher trainings, I talk about how this doesn't make sense down to our skeletal system because 
we're all so different, right? The way our hips are, where we, some people have narrower hips, some people have wider hips. A woman has wider hips than a man. After childbirth, that's going to look even more different, right? So a lot of these kind of cues that we're given, like heel to heel alignment in yoga, right? Or uh, things that are thrown out, they don't work for every single body type. And then we add the lens of Ayurveda, if you want to go there, but Ayurveda didn't come West as much as yoga did. So um, I always like to say yoga has a lost twin and that's mm -hmm. its sister science, Ayurveda. Yoga was never meant to be practiced outside the context of Ayurveda. If someone's listening and you don't know, Ayurveda basically translates to mean life sciences. It's this galaxy of holistic and healing therapies that originated in India. A lot of it has to do with diet and personalizing your diet, uh, but the overall concept is that all of us are unique and that we're governed by the elements. So people who are familiar with traditional Chinese medicine, there's some similarities there. But the key thing to take away here is that like, if you're a fire dominant person, which I am, there's yoga poses and yoga breath work that are particularly balancing and make sense for me to do. Uh, and there's also particular yoga poses and breathing techniques that would exacerbate, increase my already high fire and take me further out of balance. So that's why at the beginning of the book, we start with a simple Ayurvedic quiz to find out if you're earth, air, or fire dominant. Because if you don't know that, you're not able to personalize your practice and really get more bang for your yoga buck in the time you have to practice. You could wind up putting gas on the fire instead of ice. Exactly, which you don't want to do. Trust me, I've done that. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how my answers to that uh, quiz would, would lead me. I know that when I practice, I never really follow along. I'm always by myself when I practice, but um, I know that there's just things that I gravitate towards that just feel like the nourishing things my body wants. And um, I wonder if those, if I'm naturally aligning what like the Ayurvedic ideas, like whatever path they would send me down, if I'm just intuitively going down that route. But when you practice, I mean, you've created really a, a vast amount of content around yoga. Um, when you practice, Brett, personally, do you follow along or do you just do your own thing? I do my own thing. Sometimes I'll start a video, often one of mine, to just get going. And I always tell people, you know, if you practice with me on YouTube, which I'd love, you can start with me and then you can mute me. <laughs> like sometimes you just need a voice to kind of just get going. Get but the then mat. you can pause, you can mute. And I think the most potent practice is the personalized one. And your your question, Les, is really interesting, right? You're saying, I wonder if these poses that I'm naturally attracted to are the ones that are balancing me or, or, or my, I'm wondering if those are my soulmate postures, right? And the question is a tricky one because here's the thing is we tend to be attracted if without awareness, right? You probably have a great deal of awareness, but I just want to really shout this out for everyone listening. Without awareness, we're usually attracted to what we don't need. So we talked a little bit about my story early on. So if we want to flash back to that, remember how I told you I didn't want to try yoga because I thought it was for wimps. So I told my friend like, Ugh, I'm not going to try it. And she convinced me to try it. So I said, okay, fine, I'll try it. But my high fire, my pitta constitution was like, okay, I'll try it, but only if it's the most intense kind. So I ended up going to what? Bikram hot yoga. Um, for people who don't know, this is a style of yoga that's extremely intense. The instructor kind of screams at you and a microphone in the front of the room. Um, the room is heated to 105 degrees, I think. It's incredibly hot. It's like a sauna. So for me, 
it felt natural to push myself that hard. I loved going to those hot classes, but because it, it, I didn't have an awareness of my already high fire. So like attracts like. So if you have high air, you're going to be attracted to poses that exacerbate that sense of high air or styles of yoga that exacerbate that sense of high air, like Kundalini, where it's just like, all you do is raise energy. Um, so the thing is I was going to those Bikram hot yoga classes, but then after them, I felt really good, felt natural to push myself that hard. I love the athleticism. All of that was in my comfort zone. Cause I'm someone who loves to push myself hard. That's not where the true lesson, the true tapas, as we say in yoga, the true friction, the true heat isn't there for me, even though it was literally hot. It was easy for me to push myself that hard because I'm. that's how, how I like to operate. That's how most pittas like to operate. The rest of the day, I'd be exhausted. It was like I had a bonfire, right, that then burned to ash. Like I couldn't get off the couch. I just felt really depleted. So I was practicing, but not in a way that was balancing. So you have to keep in mind that like attracts like. And that's why I tell people the style of yoga that you're attracted to initially or the poses that you're attracted to initially probably aren't the ones that are going to balance you if you're doing that without a layer of awareness. Once I added a layer of awareness, I was like, wow, my tendency is to push myself. It's very easy for me to, you know, put physical demands on myself and do 108 sun salutations and all these chaturangas. You know, my challenge, my true work as an individual that's going to, you know, get me more connected to my purpose and my spirit is to actually back off is to actually be kind to myself, is to actually do less. And that feels very painful for me to do less. <laughs> Doing like yin or restorative yoga, like that's where the real spiritual work is for me. So it'd be interesting for you, Les, like uh, where you're coming from. Are those, you have, I'm imagining a lot of awareness. So those, the things you're innately attracted to could be very balancing for you. But I just wanted to kind of go down that tangent to explain to some other people <laughs> that like the things you're attracted to initially, kind of just like me, might be the ones that are actually skewing you further out of balance. Yeah, maybe. I remember I was a active personal trainer for many years before I finally saw like a competent coach. And within a fairly short period of time, working with someone that had a real refined skill set it became aware I had no business writing my own program because I would inherently avoid everything I didn't like doing that I really needed, but I sucked at. Mm. Um, and now after many years later, I had enough awareness to be more objective and say, okay, what are the weak links? Let me nourish those. Let me cultivate mm. strength here where I've been neglecting or whatever. But it was, um, you know, didn't, it doesn't automatically happen. Um, and I was probably really fortunate that, you know, there's probably a lot of other coaches I would have found that wouldn't have taught me the lesson the way that coach did. You mentioned earlier, I want to expand on Brett, yoga as an energy management system or energy technology, uh, Technology. Science of energy management. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Expand on that yeah. for a bit. Yes. Well, we see we have an energy management epidemic in our culture. One of the number one over-the-counter pharmaceuticals sold is sleeping pills. So we have a really hard time winding down. And then we know Starbucks is on every corner. We have a lot of people addicted to caffeine, so it's hard for us to wake up. So it's really funny. One of my favorite YouTubers, actually, she had a great, uh, I guess people asked her if she could have any superpower, what she, could, what she could have. And she said, if I could have any superpower, 
any superpower, I'd want to feel energized whenever I want and feel tired whenever I want. Hmm. And so I feel like so many of us can relate to that, right? Because it's like time for us to go to bed and our thoughts are spinning out, right? Or it's time for us to wake up and do an interview and we're exhausted. So um, what's so beautiful is, you know, yogis figured this all out millennia ago. They figured out that if they controlled their breathing in a certain way, it would calm their nervous system down. They also figured out that if they breathed in different patterns, like a short, shallow, rapid breath, that it would energize them, that it would serve to energize them. So they started studying and figuring out, wow, if I put my body in certain positions or if I breathe in certain ways, it, it calms me. If I do it in a different way, it energizes me. And the breath is the key vehicle here. So I really want to make sure we spend a little bit of time talking about the breath. The chapter on the breath in the book is the longest chapter. It was the hardest to write because the breath is what gifts you the awareness that we've been talking about this whole episode. The breath is sort of like the thermostat for your body's house. So I have one of those cool like nest thermometer things in my house where I get to, you know, spin it and say, I want it colder. I want it hotter. And literally you have the ability to do the same thing with your own breathing. Your breath is like that nest thermostat for your body's house. And this is really cool because that means that even if every single impulse within me is signaling stress, like I, I read a scary email or something terrible is happening in front of me, there's actually a manual override button that I can pull by changing my breath pattern. So the breath falls under the autonomic nervous system, which means that basically if you don't bring your awareness to your breath, your, your body's just going to take care of it for you, which is great news because we don't have to like sit here and tell ourselves like breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, or do that while we're sleeping, right? Our body does that for us. Yay. That's great. Um, but what's cool is that the breath is something that we can like take, put our, put our hands on the steering wheel of anytime we choose to. And it makes sense to do because basically if we want more energy, we can breathe in a pattern that energizes us. If we want to calm down, we can breathe in a pattern that soothes us. And it means that we don't have to really be a victim to our body's innate response, right? So I could breathe in a way that tells my body, Hey, this email is not a big deal, I could breathe in a way that signals safety to my mind, body, and spirit. And literally different hormones and peptides will start releasing in my body because of that directive. That's how powerful the breath is. What's the go-to breath style that you use when trying to give someone a tool that in an acute stress situation, if they wanted to calm down, to, to lean on? Full, the full complete breath, which is the simplest and the most profound of all the breathwork techniques. So I'm glad you asked this because in order to dive into this, we need to talk about how a lot of us, not everyone, but a lot of us are what I call reciprocal inhibited breathers. And what that means is that you're stuck breathing in a stress response. Not good, not good. And again, this is through no fault of your own. There's many reasons that this happens, but just to review a little anatomy, if, if folks are up for it, like the muscle that powers respiration is called your diaphragm. And I know you spend, you said, you know, spend time in a gym. So it's funny because I also go to a gym and I see people are very obsessed with like their biceps and their shoulders and their abs and like all these muscles that we can see. But the most important muscle that no one can see is your diaphragm because it's literally keeping you alive and how well it's functioning 
is dictating how much oxygen for CO2 you exchange with each breath. And then that means like how well the whole rest of your body is working. So we're not focused on the diaphragm because it's so deep within us because it's a muscle we can't see. But you can visualize it like a jellyfish that's kind of snuggled up under your rib cage. And every time you breathe in, the diaphragm moves down. And as it moves down, it kind of pushes on top of your belly, your stomach, and it makes your belly puff out a little bit. And then as you exhale, your navel draws back towards your spine and your belly and your diaphragm buoys up back under your rib cage. So the reason I explain this is because a lot of times I, this is called belly breathing. I call it a full complete breath, but a lot of people call it belly breathing. But let's just be clear. You can't breathe into your belly. You can't breathe into your stomach. That's not a thing. But when your diaphragm is moving in its full range of motion, the way it was designed to breathe, it kind of pushes your stomach. Uh, it it kind of jumps on your stomach like a trampoline and that causes your stomach to move forward. Now, what's happened is I know, you know, I work with a lot of women and I don't know about men, but for it's probably similar for men too. For women, like we suck it in starting at a very young age, right? We're, we're like, every time we pass a window or a mirror, we're trying to hug our belly in to look thinner. If we look back in history, women used to wear corsets in order to look thinner. And what was happening? They were fainting and passing out all the time, right? Because their diaphragm was in a literal bind. Their diaphragm couldn't move in its full range of motion. So um, what's happened? And then when we're when we're stressed, the diaphragm kind of goes into an emergency response. And instead of taking those long, deep breaths, it kind of goes, <laughs> right? That's like the classic scene we see in a, in a horror movie, right? When someone's afraid. So what can happen to many of us is that over time, either by like holding in our belly through stress or because we want to look thinner or by wearing tight clothes and also having a lot of anxiety and living up in our head, we kind of start breathing uh, with our diaphragm moving at only like 30% of its full range of motion. And all of our breath gets trapped and caught in our chest. And then what happens is the fascia, uh, the interconnective tissue supporting our skeleton and our lungs, like actually builds to support that short, shallow breathing. And then you just think that's the normal way to breathe. Then you come to yoga class, right? Or, or hopefully you go to a class where someone's helping you retrain to take these fuller, deeper breaths. And we can talk about that, but it's going to be a slow process that happens over years. That being said, everyone can try it, you know, just listening to this podcast. The, the first thing to do, the easiest thing to do, if you're feeling stressed, is to just notice how you're breathing. Just notice. So you can ask yourself, am I breathing in my chest or my belly? Does my breath feel hot or cold? Am I breathing in through my nose or mouth? You can ask all those things to yourself just right now. And what's really cool is it's kind of like putting your hands on the steering wheel of that car, right? What I love about this is even just any attempt to notice the breath calms your nervous system. Even if you don't even attempt to alter it yet, it has a soothing effect just to notice. Yeah, the act of observation can definitely change behavior in itself. Mm -hmm. Um. I wanted to ask you about something else you you touched on earlier. Yeah, we, to finish up on breath. I mean, I've been working one on one with people for a long time, and we start every session with breath. And in, with a beginner, you know, we're spending probably twenty, thirty minutes on breath. In that, uh, usually the first or second session I have with somebody, and they always have 
they just don't, it doesn't connect. It doesn't hit home. When I always say, among other like kind of go-to lines, I'll say, this will be the most important thing you gain from meeting me. This will be the most important thing to take away from the, from our, all of our interactions. And second place is really far away. And usually it's kind of in one ear out the other, but there'll be a time. It could be like weeks or months later where it'll begin to register. Cause we just wail on it every session. We don't really move on until there's some practice there, but um, I really, you know, can't be overstated. It's the rhythm of your life. It's um, it is the portal into the present moment. And there's a reason that most, if not all meditation practices or styles utilize the breath in some way as some kind of anchor. Um, yeah. If someone's listening in there wanting to work on this, one of the ways I love to teach it is just to have someone lie down. So you could do this at the end of the day in bed and just put a book or a hand on your belly and just inhale and try to have that hand on the belly move up as you breathe in and down as you breathe out. When you're lying down, it's nice because your spine is supported by the floor. So you have less to focus on. Like you don't have to think about sitting upright and all these other things. So if you want to kind of retrain your diaphragm, that's a really nice way to do it. And breathing that way is also incredibly relaxing. So it can help you fall asleep. So I love um, that as a tip. And then when you're running around throughout your day, just pause, notice how you're breathing. You don't even have to try to change the breath. Just ask those questions. Where am I feeling the breath in the body? Is it moist? Is it hot? You know, am I breathing in through the nose or mouth? Those things are so, so grounding. And I agree. I don't think that you're doing yoga unless you have an awareness of the breath. So even if you're doing like a rainbow shaped backbend and look phenomenal, if you're clenching, right, your jaw and not breathing in that moment, yoga is gone, right? Well, if you're just sitting in your car in your garage and uh, parked and place one hand on your belly and deeply observe your breath and slow your breath. To me, that is yoga, right? So it's not about the shapes that the body's in. It's about the breath and the level of awareness that you're bringing to the moment. Yeah, that's great advice. And I'll add to that. Um, I have a good amount of reps face-to-face -face with people teaching this process. And for there are there is a population of people that struggle with lying on your back and, and, and feeling this. And what I have found is if it doesn't, and I like to start there. And if for some reason you're not connecting and even if the belly is rising, but if the sternum is like lifting up, if there's a lot of upward movement during your breath, rolling over onto your belly. Mm -hmm. So the weight of your body is kind of holding your rib cage down. Cause in during breath, the ribs will expand, but think of it more as lateral movement and not so northbound. So the sternum ideally doesn't really move towards the chin, but there's a lot of movement with the ribs. And there's something about the using gravity to help you hold your weight on your ribs. So especially the bottom of the sternum has contact with the ground. I find makes it easier for some people to get that breath to move down now obviously the belly won't pop out because the floor will be there so it'll feel more um like three-dimensional expansion out like the lower back and the lower like side belly but what i find is for people that struggle with connecting the 
that musculature, that sequence, they oftentimes will just find it easier. It's like harder to mess up when you're laying on your belly, if you will. I and, love uh, that tip. Yeah, absolutely. It's harder to mess up. Yeah. And then once you gather that, ideally, you want to take that to other orientations. So yeah, as soon as you get it when you're on your belly, roll back your back and bridge that gap so that you can do it on your back. And then can you do it from seated? Can you do it from standing? Can you do it while you're walking through you know, the neighborhood or through a trail or whatever? Um, and then eventually, as you practice, you, you'll gain strength. That it will, Ideally, like you said, it is the autonomic nervous system and you, you can take over the controls, but with practice, you can affect how the autonomic nervous system is, is running that program also. There's something you, you mentioned recently, and I've heard this word a hundred times. I've really never heard it explained to me, and I've taken hundreds of yoga classes, um, but you referenced kundalini and how it is, um, you know, has an intention of some sort to raise energy, like a one-directional thing. What does that word refer to, and what does that practice, you know, what would that kind of look like? Yeah, well, kundalini is a style of yoga that I got interested in let's see, my goodness, 15, 20 years ago, I had a very negative first experience with it. Gave me a headache, gave me migraines. Mm. I, I just was like, I'm out. And I, it's ironic, right? Because then I circled back to it. Now I lead a 200-hour certification in the style of yoga. So, I mean, it goes to show, you never know. Never uh, different, different modalities come back at, at different parts in your journey. So, you know, there's so much I can say about it. To, to keep it brief, the misconception uh, so Kundalini yoga is dealing with the energy body as opposed to the physical body. Um, so if we look at Hatha and Vinyasa yoga, we can think of like, oh, those that's a modality that's preparing the physical body to then sit and meditate, kind of like we talked about, right? Kundalini yoga takes a different approach where the poses that you're doing are not so much to strengthen the hamstrings or, you know, uh, increase muscle tone. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but mainly it's working with the energy body, meaning the meridians, the internal energy channels. So you might have a Kriya, which would be like a set of Kundalini postures for the liver or for, so often it's very associated with different organs in the body as well and, and healing. Um, the, the movements are usually fast, uh, rhythmic and or completely static and still. So it's kind of playing with the polarity of movement and stillness. And then you meditate between each pose. So there's more silence and space between each posture. So they've kind of taken, instead of like meditation at the end, it's like, okay, we're just going to meditate between every single pose. For about and how long? What are we talking about here? Just, you know, two, two minutes, right? Gotcha. Something like that. Um, and again, that's, I think the preferred way to teach it, some teachers, you know, maybe don't leave as much space. And I think you need that space to ground because most of these Kundalini postures are very energizing. They're moving a lot of energy quickly. And so the idea of Kundalini is that it's this energy that lives at the base of the spine. We see this in all sorts of wisdom traditions, right? That there's this latent dormant potential or essence uh, within us that is either some traditions say it's at the tailbone or it's at the dantian or that it's uh, in the pelvis or it's in the sexual centers right and then it rises up to the crown of the head to meet and merge with universal consciousness so that's the model that i i was taught right and that's like that this enlightenment model that kind of ties to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode with yoga being a transcendent practice to leave the physical body right and connect with something else 
the way I actually teach about Kundalini and what my belief is, is that it's not this like upward volcano. Um, obviously you can just do practices that treat it and move it as such, but that the Kundalini is actually an orbit. So it's actually an orbit um, that's moving up our spinal column and down our spinal column, up Shushumna Nadi, which is the spinal cord, and down the vagus nerve and Ida and Pingala, uh, down the body as well. So it's more of this beautiful orbit that's making me feel alive, that's making me feel vibrant, and that that energy awakened within me is going to look unique and different from that energy alive and awakened within you. So it's kind of like how well is your life force circulating? Um, so that's how I like to look at Kundalini as more of this orbit. And that's how we teach it in our trainings, um, which is very different than a lot of the more purist, traditional Kundalini folks who who think of it more as just like an ascension process. Interesting. I wonder if that's related to like the cerebral spinal fluid that moves up. Uh, yes, it from is. That area. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. I've heard of different practices where you're trying to, I guess, speed up that movement because it has a fairly slow cycle i think every 12 hours or so and then you speed it up and then there's like a piezoelectric um force that's like created at somewhere in the in the yeah brain, no you're like you're completely right that's exactly what the kundalini's are doing yep. okay so it's yeah interesting yeah i would like to dive in for that are those traditionally done seated or is there a lot of standing work both. It's, I would say primarily seated, but there are a lot of standing postures. I mean, the thing with the Kundalini practices is that they work, right? Like it, it can raise energy very quickly. And that's why I think a lot of people, if they're not ready for it, or if they're taught the more traditional, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but, but like very potent practices, it's going to trigger those migraines. And if you're already high Vata, right? If we like, let's put in my personalization framework, right? Like if you're already high Vata, meaning like you already have high air, you're probably going to be really attracted to that style of yoga. And it's the last thing you need because you actually need to work more on the downward current of grounding energy rather than the upward current. Um, so I have a lot of really beginner friendly Kundalini videos on my YouTube channel. It's actually a personal passion of mine. To, I have a lot of just beginner friendly, like easy routines because my first introduction to this style of yoga made me sick, literally. Like I couldn't get out of bed for a day or two. Um, so I, I I very much like to focus on like gentle Kundalini, beginner Kundalini. So people can kind of get a taste of what the style of yoga is like and what it includes without hopefully having any of the adverse effects. So we, we move gotcha. very slowly and mindfully um, while still honoring, you know, the lineage and all the beautiful pieces of that practice. I like gentle. I've, yeah. I've been practicing yoga for a long time and I've had my share of like the high intensity stuff, but I find that I'm really using it personally for the balance of everything else I do. And like the easier, the better, like the easier, the more nourishing, the more I'm getting out of it. And um, I love other like exercise and fitness modalities. Like I love just basic calisthenics and weightlifting. Um, but as I get older, like nothing makes me feel better than finishing a a legit session of yoga that was slow and easy. Like there's something about the quality that it creates in your body for that moment and maybe carry through the rest of the day that I just don't get out of any other like uh, physical modality. It's, it's always my, and I don't teach it. And um, part of it is cause like I've, I've learned so to teach so many other modalities and like, I just have no interest 
um, because I want it all for like I just want to do it. I just want to practice mm -hmm. it. Whereas like I love teaching uh, more general exercise and and other modalities, but when it comes to yoga, I just find myself like close the door, leave me alone. I want to do it. I want it all to myself. Uh, no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I use. I love how you use the word easy. The other word I'd recommend there is like nourishing, right? Yeah. Like what's easy is what's nourishing. And so that's why I'm such a proponent of people just taking the time to create a personalized practice or at least do the quizzes in the book and meet your soulmate poses or get some awareness around what styles and breath work you're choosing to indulge in. Because if you want to have a consistent practice and people ask me this on social media constantly, they're like, how do I get consistent? How do I, consist how do I get consistent? Right? It's like the answer is to make your practice so nourishing, so easeful that you'd never, ever want to skip it. And when your yoga is filling your cup in that way, as opposed to feeling like another thing you need to do, right? Right. You don't ever want to skip it. Um, but you do need a couple tools. You do need to learn how to adapt your practice to meet you in the moment you're in. And that means that you need to tailor it to your personality, which is a huge focus of the book. But then on top of that, you need to tailor it to what's happening in your life. Right. Cause just because I'm high fire, it doesn't mean I always want to calm that down. I mean, some days I might be sick or lethargic or tired because my baby didn't sleep well. And then guess what? I actually do need energizing practices if I'm supposed to teach a lecture in an hour. Right. So you really need to be that apothecarian, I call it. Right. Like being able to whip up a tincture, a yoga antidote or healing tonic that's really perfect for you and the day you're living in because we're always changing and our external circumstances are also always changing. So this idea of one size fits yoga, one size fits all yoga is absurd. And the idea that we should practice the same thing every single day, I, I think there's value in doing that for a short period of time to observe your reaction. But, but overall as like a holistic daily practice, no, you want it to be changing and moving and evolving with you. Uh, so that's the skill of yogic adaptability that I don't see being taught. And that's really why ultimately I wrote the book. Well, that's great. Um, it sounds like no matter where you're at, you could probably find uh, use out of that strategy of of just adapting to what makes what fits you. And I would assume that that's going to change day to day. And, you know, if, and then the more you practice listening to your body, the more you could kind of utilize that algorithm to serve you in a more positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also funny because there's also so many things that don't change, right? Like there's just, there's a couple core soulmate poses that I have that I just always practice. Like they're just always there. So there's definitely an optimization, but there's also like a less is more, right? It's like once you find those poses or breathing techniques that usher you into a flow state the fastest and the most efficiently, it's like you let a lot of the other poses and things fall away. Because yeah. I see that even within my own community, you know, I've certified over 4,000 yoga teachers. Wow. A lot of them have an addiction to more. <laughs> they want to learn more poses, more kriyas, more variations, right? More, you know, it's just like this compulsion that we have from society, uh, given to us from society, right? That's like more must be better. But I feel like the more I progress with my own practice, it's like less is actually better. Simpler is actually better. And personalized is more profound. You, uh, that was what I ran for class president in high school. Less is more because mm -hmm. my name is less. And you've <laughs> mentioned that a couple of times. And, um, in your book, you had that, I think under the stretch chapter, I yes. didn't dive, uh, into that, but how did that, um, that phrase less is more relate to stretching in there? 
Well, I meet a lot of competitive stretchers <laughs> in my trainings, right? Um, there's this thing that happens in a yoga group class. This is the other beauty of practicing at home. Although you might still have these same impulses is even without realizing it, you know, students look around and they, they compare themselves to what other people are doing. And there's this idea that, you know, you've got to touch your toes, right? It's like the toes are like this elusive thing. And so a lot of what I talk about in that, that chapter is kind of unlearning that, untraining that. Um, healthy flexibility is going to look different for each of us. And healthy flexibility is, is not necessarily touching your toes or being able to lay your belly, you know, flat on your thighs, nor is that going to be anatomically possible for you pending your skeletal structure. So for me, the stretching segment of a yoga class is a place to prioritize breath to prioritize length in the spine, to let go of those compulsive urges, like me in that pigeon pose, like we talked about earlier, right? To, to push yourself, to be mean to yourself, right? To instead use the stretch segment as an opportunity to notice your internal world and your internal landscape. And a lot of times what I find in that stretch section of class is that, or of your personal ritual, is that emotions start to bubble to the surface. You're often close to the ground. You've already moved energy. You're slowing down your breath. And a lot of these stretches ask us to be still. You don't have your phone to distract you. You don't, you know, it, it's funny because for a lot of us, like the, the quick moving part of a yoga practice is easier because I have a lot to think about, right? It's like, okay, elbow to knee, arm up, hand to hip, cartwheel back, right? Like our brain's being fed a lot of things to think about, right? Because we have to right. move our limbs around in space so much. But then you put someone in a stretch, <laughs> You're just like, they okay, stay out. there. You don't have those distractions anymore. So you're often faced with like feelings that you're not, you know, don't have time in your day-to-day -day life to feel. Um, I often see more tears in this segment of a class than in any other part of a yoga class. Um, and I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but um, the, the idea here is that less is more in the sense that the less fancy choreography we have, the more we're able to tune in and go inward. And, and less is more in the sense that you don't need to touch your toes, right? This is about, this is an introspective practice and a practice of stillness and feeling sensation in the body. It's not about pushing myself to, you know, be the most flexible or to stretch further than I did last time. I mean, that's something that for me, it's even hard for my ego, you know, after having my children, there's certain poses and stretches that don't feel good in my body anymore. And I've had to say no to those and let them go or do them, but do them with like nowhere near the range of motion that I used to have. Yeah. Um, so always, it's this process of, of, of dealing with yourself ultimately. <laughs> I'm always amazed how fast we adapt to stretches. Like I, it's amazing. You could, if you do the same stretch and this is probably really good advice for someone that feels like inflexible and they never get anywhere or whatever. But if you do the same stretch on most days for like a week straight, it's a completely different stretch after week without pushing at all. Like it will just naturally open up if you spend some time there with some consistent frequency and you might even, and also we adapt the other way. Like if you don't stretch, if I stop a certain stretch for a few weeks, like I will lose it quick, but it always comes back quick by like day three or four and you don't really have to push. Um, it's, it's just very interesting how our body's always adapting to its environment and you just got to 
put yourself in these nourishing environments and then allow that adaptation to organically arise for you. Mm, beautifully uh, said, yeah. Um, I know we're 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 getting close here. I know you're running out of time. Um, I think I've got oh, <laughs> I got a lot of I have a lot more questions I could have, but I think we got a, a lot of good ones out. Maybe our paths will cross again, and we'll do round two sometime. Is there anything that you would like to add or let the audience know uh, prior to wrapping this up? Focus on your breath today. Notice your breath. I think if you're just able to do that, even if it's walking around amidst the chaos of, you know, kids or schedules or whatever, caring for elderly parents, whatever you have going on in your life, you are a yoga success story that the little things really do add up. I mean, that's one thing we didn't get to touch on, but I really want to uh, accentuate is that, you know, even just a couple moments of breath work in your garage are worthwhile. All of this is going into your nervous system bank. <laughs> Right. So I think a lot of times we're resistant to practicing or resistant to doing yoga because we think it has to be this big thing and it doesn't. Right. I'm just going to meditate sitting in my office chair now between now and the next call. Or a lot of times I just stretch my back or do like a half sun salute while I wait for my tea kettle to boil. Those are all moments where I could be scrolling on my phone, but I don't or I try to choose not to. So just inviting you to leverage the in-between moments and place your awareness on your breath. And oh, thank you fantastic. so, so much for having yeah. me. Sure. That's fantastic advice. Leverage the in-between moments for sure. Little movement snacks, wherever you can get them. Exactly. Yeah. Brett, I want to thank you for taking the time. I applaud you for all your success. And um, it's really Im impressive uh, what you've put together. And for the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. If you think you know somebody that would enjoy this conversation, please share it. I hope you all have a great day.